require such kind of precursor chemicals from street level outlets. So that's why I think it's a one of the vulnerability in Hong Kong. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A very warm welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on the 21st of June. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business and finance headlines. The Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office has laid out five expectations for the incoming government of John Lee. The HKMAO said it should tackle deep-rooted problems for Hong Kong residents, especially housing. The other four of the five targets include doing more to help Hong Kong further integrate with national development plans, raise the city's profile overseas, and develop technology and education, in addition to strictly adhering to the one country, two systems model of governments. Chinese commercial banks backed away from easing their lending rates for a fifth straight month Monday. The PBOC kept the benchmark lending rates, the loan prime rate, unchanged in June. The one-year LPR remained at 3.7%. The five-year LPR, which is linked to household mortgages, was unchanged at 4.45%. The European Union Chamber of Commerce in China said in a new report released Monday that lockdowns and strict COVID-19 restrictions were the top concern for European businesses in China for a second year running. 23% of European firms are considering shifting current or planned investments out of the country, more than double the number compared to when the survey was last conducted in February, at the highest proportion in a decade. China's crude oil imports from Russia soared 55% from a year earlier to a record level in May, displacing Saudi Arabia as the top supplier. China imported nearly 8.42 million tonnes of crude from Russia last month, with a value of 7.5 billion US dollars. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Patrick Bennett of CIBC World Markets and Iris Peng from ING Wholesale Banking. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith at CLSA. US markets were closed for a public holiday yesterday. In Europe, the stock 600 index climbed 1%. The UK's FTSE 100 jumped 1.5% higher. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng rose 0.4% or 89 points to 21,164, boosted by the real estate sector after local governments in Zhengzhou and Wenzhou offered subsidies to boost property sales. Macau casino operators fell after the SAR reported the first COVID-19 outbreak in eight months. Analyst at JP Morgan said that Macau's casino gaming revenue may go to near zero levels for at least a few weeks. The Hang Seng Tech Index rose 0.1%. It was held back by a 6.7% fall for online game operator NetEase after the company said Sunday it will indefinitely postpone the original June the 23rd China launch of Diablo Immortal, the mobile game it co-developed with Activision Blizzard. The official account for the game was banned from posting on Weibo due to violation of relevant laws and regulations. The Shanghai Composite Index fell just one point to 3,315. The tech-heavy Chinex price index extended its gain for the day to 2%. 
in the commodities markets. Brent crude oil is up 1% this morning at $114.24 a barrel. Gold is slightly lower at $1,838 an ounce. And in the currency markets, the euro, that's at $1.05. The bucks trading at 135.13 Japanese yen. Sterling is worth $1.22.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 62 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.69 in both onshore and offshore markets this morning. And Bitcoin, after its turbulent weekend, is just about holding above $20,000, trading now at $20,500. And taking a look around how Asia-Pacific markets are opening up this morning in Australia, the SX200 is up 0.8%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen 1.25% at the open. In South Korea, the Cosby is rising about a third of a percent and futures markets pointing to a gain of just over 100 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us Iris Pang, Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. Morning to you, Iris. Morning, Peter. And also with us, Patrick Bennett, Macro Strategist at CIBC World Markets. Welcome back, Patrick. Yeah, good morning, Peter. Um, let's start in China. China's commercial banks, they're backed away from easing their lending rates for a fifth straight month on Monday. The PBOC kept the benchmark lending rate, the loan prime rate, unchanged. The one-year LPR remained at 3.7%. The five-year LPR, which is linked to mortgages, was unchanged at 4.45%. And just a reminder that last week, the PBOC kept the rate on its one-year medium-term lending facility also unchanged for the fifth consecutive month at 2.85%. Why is it? We are hearing a lot of talk at the moment from the mainland about all sorts of steps to boost the economy. We had that famous uh, Premier Li Keqiang speech. Uh, a couple of weeks ago as well, which implored officials to take uh, stronger steps to try and boost the economy. But yet when there's the opportunity to do something uh, like this, they seem to back away. Why, why is that? I think um, the the effectiveness of monetary policy to help um, easing COVID measures, uh, damages on the economy is not too big compared to fiscal stimulus. So I believe that um, there will be more stimulus, fiscal stimulus to come. And at the same time, I also think that the um, the PBOC and the Chinese banks, they may be holding a wait and see approach, not to lower the interest rate too fast, because the concern of a very low interest rate is always the 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 main topic of PPOC they really worry to become another um Europe uh ECB or BOJ. And are are they um also held back by the fact that you know we have central banks now stepping away from easy monetary policy, particularly the Fed, but also others as well. A lot of central banks now around the world are raising interest rates a lot faster and a lot further than they thought they would be uh, last year. Is that sort of holding uh, China back? Uh, it is also possible because um, the interest rate differential is 
um, making some capital outflow from China into mm. the rest of the world. But we have to remember that China is a growth market. So um, if growth come back as a theme, then um, assets will flow into asset money will flow into China again. So interest rate differential is not the only factors for capital flows. Mm. Um, Patrick, what, what are your thoughts here? There was an opportunity here, wasn't there? Even if well, it yeah. just sends out a signal of some sort. Yeah, look, I think there was an opportunity, but the loan prime rates, for one, they are uh, you know submitted by the banks. Mm. Uh, I think the banks are keen to retain their you know their margins or keep their margins. Uh, there is more encouragement for lending uh, and for home lending. So I think in that way as well to you know maintain margins. But yeah, look, I, I agree with uh, with Iris in, about. Uh, China being a growth market, um, you know, cash rates in uh, or, or administered rates in, in China are less than we're seeing, uh, or the the gap has certainly been closed. Uh, I think that's advantageous to to asset markets and to growth going forward. So, yeah, I, I think that there's an opportunity now for them to uh, to see how the uh, how the third quarter starts uh, before moving again on uh, you know explicit rate rate easing. I suppose one of the worrying things is that on the mainland, the consumer is really flat on its back at the moment, aren't they? We see more and more data which suggests that consumer confidence and consumer spending just isn't recovering, even though lockdowns may be easing. Well, that's right. I mean, I think there's been a lot of it that people haven't had the opportunity to spend, that, that people have been uh, you know, in, in restrictions. But certainly, yes, uh, the, the industrial production numbers we saw uh, last week we're encouraging uh, you know, the retail uh, consumer sector remains uh, remains very soft and you know is a concern. Uh, you know when we know that China has for a long time tried to reorient its its growth away from external demand uh, uh, to something which is more sourced you know, uh, internally. So that that's certainly the uh, the one caution, well one very clear cautionary note uh, heading forward from here. It has Iris has permanent damage been done to the consumer because the hope was that we would see a rebound now that these lockdowns are sort of gradually easing, like we did in 2020. Um, but the consumer just doesn't want to open the wallet and spend. We saw that, didn't we, in the uh, the annual 618 shopping festival um, over the weekend. JD.com reported its worst sales boost in uh, in four years from, from that festival. They just don't seem to want to go out and spend on discretionary items. Um, there, there are some changes in the 618 um, festival. Um, the first thing is that other e-commerce actually um, started the 618 a lot earlier than JD. So it, it has some impact on JD. But I agree that um, for consumers, because compared to 2020, they have suffered from lockdowns, occasional lockdowns, intermittent lockdowns for almost two years now. So, um, and job markets is very weak. And therefore, they, they are very cautious to spend on um, outside food and energy. So mm. from retail sales, we can see that only food and energies have um, some very good positive gains year on year. Others are just like muted or, or in contraction. And what's it going to take to change that? I think the first thing is that the job market sentiment has to has to be pop up again. We have a lot of fresh graduates this year, and I believe that SOEs will take up the the role to provide um, 
part-time and full-time jobs for some of the fresh graduates. In past years, um, e-commerce and tech companies are also big employers, but uh, this year it may may not be so because under the regulatory um, uh, monitoring of these tech companies, they may not expand their their workforce. And SMEs are more than providing more than sixty percent of jobs, and they are now suffering. So the job market is not going to be good. Patrick, let me give you your thoughts then on this European Union Chamber of Commerce in China report um, on the impact of these lockdowns. They said they were the top concern for European businesses in China and some 23% of European firms are now considering shifting current or planned investments out of the country. That's the highest in a decade. Maybe more importantly, they also warned warned of some of the long-term consequences of this. They said, our China operations are becoming increasingly isolated due to China-based staff, both foreign and Chinese, being unable to travel to European headquarters for information exchanges, networking, training and the sharing of expertise. And senior decision makers from HQ are also being deprived of first-hand China experience which they say is resulting in less understanding of and therefore less tolerance towards China. And they say this lack of loss of diversity among the workforce in China will also impact innovation. It does seem, I mean, they're not the only Chamber of Commerce to say similar things uh, like this. We've seen the same from the US Chamber of Commerce as well. It does seem that, you know, maybe some long-term damage is being done, isn't it, to sort of business confidence and investment? Well, look, I, certainly I, I believe it is. Uh, you know, we talked about uh, you know, the end of globalization. That was perhaps something uh, earlier or perhaps predated, uh, you know, the, the COVID uh, itself. Uh, but certainly the longer we go down this path, and I, I don't have great confidence that, uh, that China will step away from this you know, COVID zero, zero COVID uh, policy. Uh, so with us for some time. Uh, so right from the... Yes, the lack of uh, diversity, the lack of uh, interaction, uh, the lack of uh, you know, opportunity for uh, you know, European companies to be selling product mm. uh, into China and China moving more to be uh, focusing more internally, you know, more uh, isolationist, if, if you like. And uh, look, I think that is a charge against global growth and it's, it's going to continue for some time. Mm. And is this going to lead uh, maybe to more layoffs because workers are losing their jobs, aren't they? Businesses are struggling. We're seeing more and more businesses close down. Is this going to get reflected eventually in the job numbers on the mainland? Well, that's right. I mean, what we've seen, you know, we're seeing now you know, globally under the impact of uh, you know, very hawkish central banks and the fear of a you know, hard landing or the fear of a, a recession. Uh, and mm. if we have China still... Uh, along a path which is very protracted to uh, to regain their own momentum, uh, you know, then global growth, global demand is uh, you know is much weakened and certainly weakened from the uh, from the Chinese side as well. Are you are you Iris, expecting to see um, a pickup in unemployment as a result of this? Um, I think for for COVID zero, I think it is a policy to stay, mm. but the mechanism of how it works has changed. Uh, when we look at Beijing and compared to Shanghai, there are big differences on how they manage the, the lockdowns. So I believe that, yes, the, the COVID zero will, will stay, but the lockdowns will be shorter in duration and um, not too frequent. Um, but of course, 
it doesn't mean that the borders will reopen widely um, for for foreigners or or people doing businesses mm. and even Hong Kong people, right? So um, it is it is really a uh, uh, an business issue for people who who are doing business or wants to do business in China. Okay, let me. You, you mentioned uh, Patrick, uh, the central banks, and, and what's going on there. It seems really the big issue of our time at the moment, certainly for investors in the markets, uh, is U.S. inflation. What the Fed is doing to try and combat that, and also the difference between what's happening in China and Japan uh, compared to what the the Fed uh, is going to do. How is all this going to be resolved? Well, I think it's going to be resolved uh, globally by uh, by sharply higher rates. Um, uh, the central bankers have set out their store you know, very clearly. Uh, they're dealing with inflation uh, in most cases uh, and will raise rates you know, sharply and swiftly. Yeah, the contrast we're seeing elsewhere, Japan is, is staying the course. Uh, China is you know, staying the course. They don't have an inflation uh, issue at present and are trying to provide some stimulus. Uh, the question being whether you know that stimulus uh, in, in China one is able to uh, is able to you know, bring the economy uh, you know out of this uh, out of the slowdown uh, in Japan less so we still have a uh, a very uh, a very sluggish economy uh, inflation is starting to pick up but uh, the Bank of Japan who deals with inflation rather than the rather than the currency uh, directly uh, you know holding the path to uh, to keep easing. Whether that filters down to the real economy is, is, is not quite clear. Uh, swap rates in Japan are a lot higher than the policy rates. You know, so the effective rate that the, poli that the economy is facing is you know, somewhat higher than where the Bank of Japan is. And we're not convinced yet that they're willing to, you know, to, to come back and, you know, and centre those, those rates at this stage. Uh, are these higher US rates, these much higher US rates, going to lead to recession? Look, I think it's very difficult to expect they won't. Uh, we had the inversion of the, you know, the twos tens, uh, uh, and that has been a, you know, a very good predictor of, uh, you know, of recessions. I think it's got you know, nine. Of, I think it's got all of the last, uh, the last ten. Whereas it's got about fifteen out of the last ten, isn't it? Well, I think econ <laughs> I think economists have got twenty-five of the last ten. <laughs> uh, but, but, but yes. Uh, but the thing is, whether that recession comes within, say, within three months or eighteen months. And, and look, I think the way that the uh, the Federal Reserve is, uh, you know, is moving to tighten rates, and and they f they they would uh, prefer to uh, you know to cap inflation uh, than to have you know than to have a a, a recession. So their, their focus is inflation uh, rather than uh, rather than recession outright. So well, yeah, I, I fear that there will be in the perhaps the first or second quarter of next year. All right, so let me let me read out. So I've got an email from a listener. Um, it's quite long, so I'll try and summarise it because it refers to an attachment as well. It comes from Anthony, Anthony Wood, who lives in Hong Kong. He says, I listen to the show or the podcast every day. He says, the burning issue for discussion right now are US inflation and the dictomony with what is happening in China and Japan. You've been addressing these issues with your guests, but I don't think anyone's managed to put their finger on the core issue, which is to be found via the reference to the quantity theory of money. And he's referred me to an interview uh, with Professor Steve Hankey. Uh, and he and uh, he worked with uh, and uh, and th and this article basically says inflation's uh, a result of money supply growth. It's not because of an overheating economy or labour shortages or supply chain bottlenecks or or the other factors being cited by the media. But he basically says uh, modest Fed rate hikes aren't going to be enough to deal with this. What, what what's your response to that? Um, in in. The economics theories. There are actually more than one theory to explain inflation, 
and um, the uh, QTM, the, the quantity theory of money, is only one of them. It says that that when the money supply is too fast, growing too fast, there will be inflation. Um, I I think that um, for now it's not the case. Let us look back for the last ten years or even more. We have been uh, the world has been growing money for long, and we didn't see inflation for some time. And this inflation, I believe, is coming from after COVID, the rebound of growth that comes uh, that makes the prices higher. At the same time, we have higher energy prices. These two are somehow related and somehow in uh, in coincidence because of the Russian Ukraine incidents. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is it is not quite the same. Mm. Final thoughts from you, Patrick. Uh, look, yeah, quantitative, uh, quantitative theory and, uh, and money has certainly had an impact. Uh, you know, I always like to think that you know, inflation is you know, first and foremost uh, too much money chasing too few things. Uh, you know, and certainly we've had asset price inflation for a long time because of the profligacy of, uh, of central banks. And now they're trying to you know, withdraw that at the same time as the, uh, as the circumstances which, uh, which Iris uh, clearly pointed out. Uh, you know, COVID uh, supply chain issues, uh, Ukraine Russia uh, conflict have uh, you know have come into uh, you know, ha have come into being at the same time. So, you know, I think we're in an unfortunate uh, confluence of, of circumstance. But certainly, monetary policy has been loose; uh, it's being tightened, and, and that's the way to, uh, to to deal with this. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard that Patrick Bennett, macro strategist at CIBC World Markets, Iris Pang, who is Chief Greater China Economist at ING Wholesale Banking. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.24. On the phone from Tokyo is Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA. Morning, Nick. Good morning, Jim. Well, one place where there isn't inflation at the moment, uh, or not much of it anyway, is Japan. And as a result, the BOJ uh, left its ultra-loose monetary policy uh, in place last week. This is now really the big standout, isn't it, in the world? Because uh, it, there used to be, I think, the Swiss National Bank was probably as dovish as the BOJ, but it's moved away from that now. So the BOJ is pretty well standing alone in the world here. Certainly, yes. And uh, I mean, it's funny uh, that uh, you strip out VAT, and this is really the first time we've been uh, above um, 2% uh, inflation, really since, uh, since the early 90s. Um, and yet, there's a huge amount of, uh, of criticism about this. There was the Cure poll um, a couple of weeks back where 59% of people said that, um, uh, that uh, Kuroda wasn't uh, suitable uh, as governor of the Bank of Japan. And then there was the uh, um, rather more credible uh, Nikkei poll over the weekend with a lot of criticism of, um, of the Prime Minister's handling of, uh, of inflation. And, and you look back and say, well, they've been trying to achieve this for, uh, for decades and months after achieving it, they're already complaining about it. But surely the point is, really, you shouldn't have been trying to achieve uh, inflation without a concomitant plan to, uh, uh, to get wages up. Uh, that, I think, was, um, was serious. And I, I don't think that um, inflation is terribly sustainable without um, 
uh, without wage growth. <clears throat> this seems to be the big change, doesn't it, recently? That I mean, this policy has been in place for quite a while now, several years, um, and, and the Japanese public haven't really talked about it or focused on it or really been too bothered about what Kuroda says. But suddenly, uh, it's taking up a lot of headlines. Well, um, he could have shown a bit more empathy. Um, so they're struggling. If you look at what's been moving, and I find this absolutely extraordinary, if you look at what's moved since uh, 2012, since uh, the arrival of Abe, what's gone up is food. Mm. Um, and so food prices are up uh, 40-plus percent, um, vastly outpacing anything else. And you couldn't have found a more socially divisive place to get prices up than in food. Mm. And it, it's a little difficult to understand why, but uh, I put out a report where I mapped um, CPI in um, uh, food CPI against the uh, the balance sheet of the Bank of Japan and, and sort of said, Jacques, this is... Um, it, it's, it's strange that you print four and a half trillion dollars and really pretty much the only thing you can get to go up is, is the, the one most socially divisive thing. And he said, I think, didn't he, that the Japanese public weren't too bothered by increasing prices, which he then had to go and retract, which was a rather insensitive thing for him to say. It was. It was. Uh, I mean, he, he was speaking um, as if he was speaking to uh, to economists. And, of course, the uh, the job uh, requires speaking to um, the um, the housewife and the, uh, the man in the street. And they're not too happy about this. And that's simply because wage increases haven't been particularly good. I would have thought uh, I expected that we'd get better wage growth than this, bearing in mind how incredibly tight the labor market is. Um, so it's tighter than it's been for um, uh, 87% of, of the, the data series history going all the way back to the early 70s. Um, it, it's, and half of the points where it's been tighter were uh, when Japan was actually inside the probably the biggest bubble in human history, um, uh, the late 80s bubble. So um, it, it's, it's an odd situation that we've got a very tight labour market, but wages aren't going up. Mm. So... Um, we're seeing some pressure points as a result of this, aren't we? Particularly in the currency markets, uh, the yen at a 24-year low now, um, and also in the JGB market as well, where uh, the Bank of Japan is just hoovering up lots and lots of government bonds, and, and at some point it's going to own the whole market, isn't it, at this rate? Uh, it's Well, it's obviously moving in that direction, yes. Um, so the the currencies uh, at uh, what one um, one thirty five at the moment. Um, the the high point for the year was uh, was back in January where we were at one one three point six eight. So it's a heck of a move, mostly over the last uh, the last three months. Um, of course, um, taken as a whole, uh, Japan uh, corporate Japan is a beneficiary from all of this. Um, but the, the strange thing is that over the last uh, 25 years, uh, wage payments have gone absolutely flat and, uh, and profits have tripled. So you would like to be able to say, well, OK, um, with the weekend, the companies will be making more money. They'll be able to, uh, to pay wages. They ought to pay um, higher wages, bearing in mind how tight the, the labour market is. And that way we'll be able to, uh, uh, to allow people to, um, to pay for things despite the inflation. But it doesn't seem to be going that way at the moment, which is incredibly mm. frustrating. And we really need more out of government from this, which is what we'll, we'll have a, a, a lot of argument with the uh, 10th of July 
by upper house elections. Um, here's a quick question for you. Uh, the, the Japanese yen's at a 20-year low against the Hong Kong dollar, and Hong Kong residents have been rushing to uh, Bureau de, de Changes to swap their Hong Kong dollars into yen. So what would you advise they go and do now with all this yen that they own? Should they go and invest it in the markets, or do they go and take a holiday in Japan? What would you advise? Oh, you absolutely need to do both. Um, I must say, it's, get, it's still very difficult to get a holiday in, um, in Japan, but uh, one hopes that that will change once we get the other side of the upper house elections. Um, as for the market, it is, it, it is dirt cheap. And actually, it is um, it's doing better than others. So as long as the currency is hedged, uh, Japan's off 7% against um, sort of 23, 24% off for, uh, uh, for US stocks. But Japan is dirt cheap uh, and actually not doing that bad as an economy because of all the fiscal stimulus going on. Okay, Nick, thank you very much indeed for that. That's Nick Smith, Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo right now, the Nikkei 225 is currently up one and a third percent. So something you can do with your yen there, maybe. Uh, the ASX 200 in Australia also up about 0.9%. Osby in South Korea up about 0.6% and the Hang Seng looks set to open about 100 points higher later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Back chat is coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast hot with sunny periods. Maximum temperature around 32 degrees. Going to remain fine and very hot in the next couple of days. It's 29 degrees right now. 79% relative humidity. Here's Todd Harding with the half-hour news. The iconic jumbo floating restaurant has capsized in the South China Sea days after being towed away from Hong Kong. No crew members were injured. Frank Young has more. In a statement, parent company Aberdeen Restaurant Enterprises said the vessel had encountered stormy weather on Saturday, causing it to partially sink before capsizing a day later. It also said it expected the salvage work to be extremely challenging since the waters there were more than a thousand meters deep, but that it was now getting further details from the towing company. The 46-year-old restaurant, once a popular tourist destination in Aberdeen Harbor, suspended operations in 2020 amid the pandemic. It was donated to Ocean Park, but the amusement park later said it couldn't find a third-party operator. The parent company had refused to reveal where Jumbo was bound for, saying only that it had found a suitable parking space for it outside Hong Kong. A former Macau legislator says there are mixed feelings in the SAR over government efforts to curb the latest COVID outbreak. Citywide mass testing began on Sunday after dozens of cases were found over the weekend. The self-testing should finish by noon today. Schools are suspended and people are advised not to go to work. Agnes Lam, an associate professor at the University of Macau, says the government responded quickly and systematically to the COVID surge and has pledged to help businesses cope. When the government announced that there are more cases and we need to do the test and so everyone's responses are okay, we can't really afford that anymore and so then people were unhappy. So that's also the reason, I guess, that the government announced another 10 billion of public business supporting scheme yesterday and saying that they are going to help the business to go through all this. Back locally, the government's counter-terrorism unit is stepping up a publicity campaign in shops that sell chemicals to try to make it harder for a terrorist to buy raw materials to make bombs. 
Officers from the Interdepartmental Counterterrorism Unit say authorities have uncovered almost 20 cases involving explosives or precursor chemicals since the social unrest of 2019. Those who sign up pledge to report anything suspicious, such as people buying an unusual amount of chemicals and paying in cash. Peter Leung is a senior police superintendent. I think one of the channels is through the hardware stores or chemical outlets in Hong Kong. The pattern is the same as the overseas terrorist incident experience. That means uh, overseas terrorists also aim to acquire such kind 